Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Our guest today is Corey Ashton Walters, founder and CEO of HERE. HERE is an investment platform fractionalizing shares of rental vacation properties. Corey and his team released their first IPO just a few weeks ago, an appropriately named home called Sunburst in Largo, Florida. In this episode, Corey talks about the inspiration behind here, the unique opportunities of investing in vacation homes, and his vision for the company's future. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Corey. All right, guys, we are very happy today to have Corey Ashton Walters. He's the founder and CEO of Here.co. I know you guys recently released your platform, Corey. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much, Horatio, for having me on. I think I'm a bigger fan of, of you than, than than you think. I'm a big fan of all. It's a big fan of the community and uh, really love what you guys are doing. So this is going to be like kind of a love fest, I think, today. <laughs> Man, that's good to hear. Really appreciate it. We, we are getting a lot of love uh, recently. So thank you for, for, for mentioning that, Corey. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great community and you know, it's a really interesting time to be in the business or the, the, the times that we see now in alternative investing. Absolutely. But enough about us. We are here to discuss here.co your baby i know you've been working on it for a while we've been kind of going back and forth just kind of want to talk about it. you know it's it's an investment platform it's a fractional investment platform for rental properties and so kind of wanted to talk about that how you envisioned the company what kind of inspired you to start it and what it is yeah absolutely yeah so you know put simply you know the elevator pitch is you know we essentially turn vacation rentals into stocks that you can trade so that's the short one sentence but you know to go a bit deeper we essentially you know we work with the sec to securitize and fractionalize ownership of cash flowing vacation rentals in the most enchanting destinations on planet earth. So the idea is, you know, we're scouring, you know, the the places that you and your family maybe vacation to, whether it be a Joshua Tree or, you know, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, you know, uh, beaches on the Florida coast. You know, we, we find those locations, we find the best properties in those locations, and then we fractionalize ownership in them. And then we run them as high-performing vacation rentals and enable our investors on our platform to earn passive income as well as any appreciation that these properties generate. So it's about as close as you can get to real estate investing on your own uh, without the burden of doing it by yourself. In here's case, you know, hundreds of investors invest on each property rather than, you know, one or two if you had a partner, let's say. You know, you could get into different parts of uh, the real estate. Why vacation rental properties? Interesting question. Rewind about a little over a year and a half, the, the tail end of, of winding down my last startup, which, you know, got wiped out during COVID. And uh, I was searching for answers. I was searching for what to work on next. And I was picking up books, articles, whatever I could get my hands on. And around this time, I think Airbnb was going public. This is like back in September of 2020. And there's this really interesting metric from a company called Grandview Research. They did a research report on Airbnb, um, specifically their S1. And about halfway through the report, there was a metric um, that said by 2025, 75% of all travel and leisure spend in North America is going to be made by millennials or younger. And um, that sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole. I mean, it was a big light bulb moment. It basically means over the next half decade, like five years, the majority of spend on hotels, flights, travel-related expenses are going to be driven by young people, specifically people under the age of 40. 
And uh, the reason why it was such a big light bulb moment is that there's no secret that when millennials and you know young people generally travel, they prefer alternative accommodations when they travel. So not hotels, you know, like glamping and cabins and yurts and you know cool you know Airbnbs and things like that. And currently, there's a pretty big imbalance of the demand for those types of accommodations and the supply that exists. You know, if you look at uh, I don't know the last time you ever stayed in an Airbnb. But generally, it's like a dice roll of what you're going to walk into. You know, you open the door and it's like, you know, is there going to be plates in the in the sink? Are the sheets going to be dirty? Is the AC going to work? It's totally random. And we thought, huh, there's a really interesting opportunity here because vacation rental industry, specifically short-term rentals, are super fragmented. Most of them are independently owner-operated. Most of us know a friend or family member that has an Airbnb that they run. And uh, that's still pretty true to this day, for the most part. It's a largely fragmented industry. So I thought, okay, there's going to be a pretty big supply demand and imbalance of like this millennial wave that's coming in regards to, to travel and leisure demand and the supply that exists. So that was a big light bulb moment. Went down a pretty deep rabbit hole, came out the other side and was like, okay, there might be something here to build. And originally, we were going to build something uh, very similar to like Roofstock. Yeah, so they identify like long-term rentals that um, are, you know, generally in the Midwest, they uh, fix them up. So they buy them, fix them up, fill them with a tenant, and then they sell them to an end investor. So we thought, we'll do that, but for vacation rentals. So we'll find homes and, you know, beautiful locations. We'll, you know, fix them up. We'll, you know, do a beautiful interior design and we'll fill them with guests and then we'll sell them to one end investor. And pretty early on, we realized that wasn't going to work because they're very hard to get mortgages on. It's actually probably easier to get a mortgage for farmland than it is a vacation rental. There just isn't the infrastructure today on the lending side for this asset class. It's still somewhat new in regards to being treated seriously as an asset class within real estate. So what was interesting uh, was that uh, the answer ended up becoming fractionalization. And the reason why I even stumbled on fractionalization as a way to relieve some of these financial burdens or financial pressures around the the cost of entry on the asset class and also the troubles around long-term loans or acquiring long-term loans was I got hit with an ad for a company called Masterworks. And I'm sure a lot of your community is aware of Masterworks. They do fractional ownership of artwork. The interesting thing was, it was the first time I ever heard of the Reg A+. Which is this beautiful instrument that allows you to fractionalize ownership of, you know, collectibles and you know different things that are worth you know money or have monetary value, and actually enable access to anybody of any walk of life. They don't have to be accredited. They could be non-accredited. They could be international. Whatever the case might be. And I thought, huh, I wonder if we pointed this at the vacation rental asset class. If we can remove some of these barriers that we were experiencing when we first started working on this project. And turns out, you know, it was true. So we spent the last year or so working with the SEC to to bring fractionalization uh, for the first time to the vacation rental asset class. Awesome. Can we talk a little bit about your previous uh, time? Because you, you were looking kind of at that that real estate industry. And you mentioned before you were a co-founder uh, at Homeworthy, right? Yep. So so you were, you were very familiar with real estate. How is your previous experience related to what you're doing now in terms of, you know, identifying properties or even looking at certain regions? I don't know if the two meshed and it kind of gave you uh, an ability to, to to transfer over your your skills and your knowledge into something new. Yeah, you know, Homeworthy taught me a lot. Um, it was my first startup. It was the first time I experienced any type of hyper growth or startup style growth, so to speak, which is you know crazy. You're pulling your hair out. You feel like the wheels are going to fall off the bus. You know, it's 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 out of control. But Homeworthy was interesting because what we essentially did was we enabled people living in rural America 
with the best tools and technology to sell a house. So we brought big city tools and technology to people living in rural America that wanted to sell a home. So drone aerials, 3D scans, video walkthroughs, really, really high quality deliverables that you'd expect in a New York or Miami or a Los Angeles to small town America. And when I say small town America, I mean very rural, you know, sub thousand people living in a town. And over the course of about a year after uh, home release inception, we grew from two cities in our service market to over 900 small cities and towns across the entire Pacific Northwest. And the big lesson I learned from Homeworthy, you know, ultimately it didn't work out. The timing was wrong. COVID wiped us out. You know, I could probably spend an hour talking about that. But the big lesson I learned, we built an entirely remote way to scale into a lot of cities fast. We call it city stacking internally. And the idea was that we built remote systems to to reach these homeowners in these really, really far, you know, almost untouchable locations. I don't even think Amazon, you know, maybe is the only service provider out there that's providing any type of, you know, technological innovation on the local level, like Amazon Prime, that is. And I carried over a lot of that thought process. And when we looked at here or starting here around, you know, how could we buck the existing trend of how most of these real estate startups work, where you launch a city, you go deep in a city, you launch another city, you go deep in a city, and it takes a long time to scale across the United States. I mean, sometimes a decade, sometimes a long. I mean, Open Door has been around for almost 10 years, and I think they're in less than 30 or 35 cities. It takes a long time. So we took the same approach with here that we do with Homeworthy, which was, well, how can we how can we hit or how can we touch a lot of cities quickly without having to go deep there, without having to set up an office on Main Street and set up, you know, full boots on the ground. And um, that was a big key to how we thought about building um, here. So there was definitely some some lessons learned from Homeworthy that we've applied to launching here. Absolutely. Let's get into it. You launched a, a couple weeks ago, you know, give or take. The property that you have, it's called the Sunburst uh, on the Florida Gulf Coast. Yeah, very proud. I named it that. That was my name. I take full credit for that. I'm, I'm not a copywriter, but we voted on it and it was, it was that I got the winning name. It was great. Yeah, I, I think of yellow. I think of something like warm and nice, you know? Uh, yeah, we take that approach to naming, which is uh, a feeling. When we name a property, it's immediately what do you feel versus like one, two, three Apple Street or four, five, six Main. I don't know. It's more sure. fun. It makes you feel more attached to the property, and it's a vacation rental, so you want to f- think about a hotel. When you say to a hotel, they they come up with a cool name for the hotel. So for us, it's like the inside joke with with Sunburst, or we call it internally here one was nobody really knows this is that me and my daughter set up that unit myself. My daughter's five years old. She has no clue what an Airbnb is, and she calls them small hotels. <laughs> so I always talk to her when you know when I'm like, "Oh, I'm in the office. I'm working in in the office, you know, in the, in my house right now." And she's like, "Oh, are you trying to buy more small hotels?" So we think of these actually as kind of small hotels. So it's like when we name these and brand these, we try and think of it like a hotel. So, but yeah, that was the that's the that's the name. That's awesome to view them that way. And you chose Largo, Florida, right? So which is on the Gulf Coast. Yep. Uh, and I did some you know a little bit of research. So much to do around there, right? It's a beach town. Yeah, very close to Clearwater. And and then some. It's got like other, you know, nice nice parks and. Right. It wouldn't be the logical choice, though, right? It wouldn't be like the the sense where you mentioned before, you know, a California coast rental property or 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 Miami or Los Angeles, you know, whatever the case might be. Yeah, very random. Not on the top of your radar. Why? Give you're going to ask why, which is going to be the next thing. Why Largo? Why that market specifically is the first property? What did you see in Largo? Uh, what did you see about that home? And you know, as much as you could talk about it, you guys were able to fully fund the the home it was like a 390k offering which to me is a large asset you know it's it, so congratulations on filling that because that's a lot of capital for for one asset so congrats on that but yeah why largo 
you know, I wish I had this insane analytical data answer for you, but the immediate reason why we chose Largo was I live in a town called Merritt Island, Florida currently. And uh, it's in Brevard County, and, and it's actually a really great tourist destination. It's very close to Cocoa Beach and Cape Canaveral, and like there's a lot of stuff going on here, but very anti-vacation rentals here. So when I looked at launching our first market, I knew that I was going to have to stand up the first unit myself. I mean, you, you re- rewind six or nine months. When you first start a startup, it's just you. you know, you're doing all the dirty stuff. Whatever your business is, you're the one doing it. So I thought, if I'm going to be the one setting up this unit and making it beautiful, where's the closest legal market to me that is desirable? In Kissimmee and Orlando came to mind, but you know, Orlando and Kissimmee are very challenging because you've got a lot of hotel competition, and you've got Disney competition, and you know, even there has some you know some some regulation you know challenges. But my brother, shout out Corey, he's got he my stepbrother, he's got the same name as me. It's kind of awkward. My brother, he has a few vacation rentals in Largo, Florida. He's owned them for a couple of years now. And he's always bragged to me about how great that market was. So when I thought about launching a market, that was my first thought. I was like, it's going to have to be Largo, which is about two hours from my house. So I did a lot of driving back and forth. But Largo is incredibly situated from a from a tourism standpoint or from a vacation rental market standpoint because you're very close to Tampa. You're basically in the Tampa suburbs. You're situated between Tampa and Clearwater. Basically, to get to Clearwater from Tampa, you've got to go through Largo. You're six minutes from the beach. You are very close to Bush Gardens. You're very close to a large airport. The home values are somewhat, you know, lower comparative to other coastal cities in Florida. So we did take an analytical approach to biting the bullet and actually buying the deal. But when we looked at markets, it was just the obvious, like the soup, it's the closest place. But it's an incredible vacation rental market. Also, by the way, it's legal to have vacation rentals there. So for us, that's really important. When we launch properties, we need to make sure that we can operate legally. But that's how we ended up in Largo. It, it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense every way, right? I mean, just 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 because it was close to you, you, you know, you're starting off the the platform and you did your research on it as well, right? I mean, then in the circular, right, there is a lot of data there to back up your investment. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we definitely couldn't buy a property that was upside down, you know, from an uh, you know economic standpoint. Uh, we definitely thought a lot about that, and there's a lot of pressure on your first your first offering, whether you're doing you know fractional ownership of, of housing or wine or whatever the case may be, you know, artwork, the first offering has got to look good. It, you know, it's got to not look good just from an aesthetic standpoint, but also from a return profile standpoint. So that was something we took very seriously. But when we chose the market, it was very like uh, caveman. I was like, oh, I know somebody here. So let's just, you know, let's pick this market. And then you scour the earth to try and find a home that fits. And in this case, Sunburst fit the uh, criteria. One of the things that we've we've mentioned, I like we talked before uh, on our Discord, you've gotten some buzz. They were wondering, I was like, man, only one property? I think they were when when you were launching, I think they were anticipating maybe picking two or three properties, which leads me to my next question. How do you anticipate rolling out the next properties? Will it be one at a time? Will you be offering them in bunches? You know, what can people expect? And what regions are you looking at now that you have your first uh, first one under your belt? It's a great question. I'm just as frustrated as the people in Discord. I mean, I'm just frustrated on not being able to launch a ton of properties at once. One of the challenges we had with getting approved to fractionalize you know, this asset class was doing multiple properties at once. We learned pretty early on, we were stuck with launching with one because any new property we added, it delayed our qualification with the SEC. So we thought, okay, we have to bring one property to market and then the idea is like after this, qualifications happen much faster on a much smaller time horizon, you know, days instead of months. 
So that was the first problem that we saw. And we thought well, we've got to launch with something and then we need to quickly identify the properties that we can add as amendments essentially to that initial offering. Um, or at least that's the way it's structured. So yeah, I'm just as frustrated as you know you and your community are in regards to that rollout uh, personally. But you know, over the next couple of weeks, we're launching properties you know, all over the country. You name it, we're looking there. The first that come to mind um, is Big Bear, California, which is very close to Los Angeles. It's probably the closest ski snowboarding town to Los Angeles. It's about um, an hour and a half, two hours up into the mountains from LA. We're also looking at Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Gatlinburg is the big Smoky Mountain retreat destination, uh, one of the most popular places to visit in the Smoky Mountains. The idea is, you know, we're really looking for what we call a de- destination markets. So these are places that people travel to, to vacation. Joshua Tree comes to mind. The Poconos come to mind. Where do you, where do you live, Rachel? New York City. You live in New York City. Okay. So yep. like the Hudson Valley maybe comes to mind or the Aradox, you know, um, super upstate New York. So we're really looking in like the most beautiful places on planet earth, but internally we're launching a lot of markets. So we're, we have a, you know, pretty interesting acquisition schedule of not having to go deep in each market to launch a market. We're going to offer a lot of diversity there. We, we've realized that people are going to get pretty sick of if the next 15 properties were in Largo, there'd probably be some degradation of excitement. So we've refocused on going really wide and launching a, you know, a wide diversity of properties in a lot of different you know, geographies. Yeah, I could see that being, and just my kind of thing, observation, it being frustrating only being able to start with one. But at the same time, I think maybe it's good in that you don't have to worry about three different things happening, you know, three different properties at once. It gets you, it gets your feet wet. And then once that happens, then by regulations, now the floodgates are open and now you guys can really uh, get the ball moving. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. It's like building the template. Uh, Sunburst or, you know, I, it was essentially the template for future offerings. So we largely replicate that template and we are able to move much faster to get approval. You know, the, the tough thing is we've got to get approval from the SEC before anybody sees anything. So we we're kind of like, Amazon in a way we're like we're working two years in the future before anybody sees anything and then you get you know so it's this weird feeling of like we're not a big company but I feel like the CEO that works three years in the future in a way because I we just can't launch things you know as quickly as we'd like because of you know x or y stakeholder um, specifically in our case it's you know the government did you use the same model where you kind of found um, these homes that were in decent shape but then you kind of put in some capital improvements in there to, you know to like you said if you're going to advertise them and, and kind of get people to want to come to your property, you got you to spice it up a bit. Yeah, certainly. Right now, we currently look for vacation homes. Um, so generally, people's second homes. So somebody that owns a second home that they visit, you know, on summers or on winters, depending on the destination. Um, and then we turn them into vacation rentals. So in many cases, they, they already have beautiful furniture. Um, they already have a lot of the things needed to be able to move quickly to launch an offering. But after that, you know, once we've identified a property and, you know, we put under contract and, um, start moving through an offering, we then identify value add, um, improvements for the property and very contrarian to how most people think about value add in real estate value add could be renovating a kitchen or renovating a bathroom or things of that nature. What we look at with value add are things that optimize and increase the booking revenue and the occupancy rate for the property. Because that's the big differentiator for the vacation rental asset class, which is cash flow. So we look for things like, does this have a hot tub? Does this have board games? Does this have a work from home setup? Meaning like a dedicated office, a nice desk, perhaps a stand-up desk, perhaps an external monitor with an HDMI cord. Those are things that we look at that actually set the property apart from others in the market. And it increases or potentially increases uh, booking revenue and the economics of the performance of the property. 
So those are the things we look at for value add um, when we are essentially underwriting a property um, to launch on the platform. That's so interesting. You wouldn't think about those little things, you know, from the outside, right? Like, yeah, and they add up for sure. You know, it, it varies market by market, but there's some markets where a pool will add thirty percent in booking revenue, which thirty percent seems like a big number. But if you added that to, let's say, two hundred thousand dollars a year in booking revenue, which some properties do, you're talking a sixty thousand dollar increase per year to booking revenue by adding a pool and hot tubs are very similar. I think it's a 10 or 15% lift and um, even adding a grill, like if it doesn't have an exterior grill or a fire pit, there are these little bumps to booking revenue that if you start to stack them, you see this really interesting lift to unit economics and value add. So we think that as a big differentiator uh, here is, you know, we look pretty deep at those different uh, opportunities to add value to the property. Sure. And I guess that kind of ties into the differentiator, right? The competition can be fierce, right? I mean, there are other uh, companies out there that uh, have fractional vacation rentals. Sure. You did touch on that before. You said it's a growing market. There's an opportunity there. You know, when you refer to the millennials are going to be responsible for more than half of these bookings, uh, non-traditional bookings, right? Um, So that's one thing that's going for you. But what are your thoughts on that, on the competition? Is there there room for everybody? Um, We hear that a lot in the fractional investment space. Or is it something where you are really going to have to be forced to, you know, be a little bit different. Yeah, I think we're all going to have to compete on product. You know, um, I think at the end of the day, the best product wins. Um, there's always going to be new entrants to new markets um, in in every category of business. So we think we're building the best product, and we think we have the best team to accomplish that. And we're relentlessly focused on improving our product. I mean, relentless, consistently unsatisfied is a, is a you know probably my mantra currently. Which is dramatically improving product, whether it be you know investor experience, whether it be you know those value add um, you know things that we look at when we underwrite a property or markets or new markets or partnerships you know on the property level. But I do think there's opportunity for a lot. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to to cut this, and it seems like a lot of companies are focused more on uh, traditional long term rental fractionalization. I say that's the biggest growing market. We're laser focused on vacation rental, you know, as as an as an asset class. Um, this is this is what we're going to do. This is what we built our team on, and we're going to continue to build our team on is that focus. Before I move on, just want to ask: Is the Sunburst currently available for rent? Is it is it out? Yep, totally. Yep, open to the public. Yep, hundred percent. You know, go. To, I'll send you a link after this. But um, yeah, yeah, go to Airbnb and search for Largo Properties, and you know, it'll pop right up. It's actually the same photos that you see on on the offering. But uh, yeah, totally available for, for rent. We're trying to build out things into the roadmap that you know make it easier for investors to get access to properties they've invested in. You know, whether it be to stay in or whether it be to share with friends or family. Um, we're trying to find you know figure out a way you know on our roadmap to to create a clean you know product experience there uh, to share that. Uh, kind of want to move into some of the more nitty gritty stuff, things that, that people are always curious about. This is easy. I mean, who who's able to invest on the platform? Accredited retail investors. What are the minimums going forward? I know we, we you're offering one dollar per share for for the sunburst. And if you could also talk about like the fees that are involved as an investor, right? What can they expect uh, to be taken out of potential return? Yeah, great question. So uh, f- uh, first and foremost, I'll get in, I'll I'll go into uh, accreditation. So at this time, anybody with a social security number can invest on here. What that means is. Anybody that is non-accredited, anybody that is accredited, you could live internationally as long as you have a social security number. And the current minimum investment is $100. So that's the minimum, basically, uh, investment to open up an account here. The share values change from property to property. I believe Sunburst was $1 
um, per share. It made it really easy to determine how many shares there were when it's $1 a share. You just tie it to the market cap. That's actually why we why we decided to go down that route. There's a good chance the next few will start there. We really think it helps us future-proof the company. What we've learned is if you start at $150 a share, what happens when you reduce your minimum investment and then you start to price out you know, these investors on these properties that you start off with really high share values. So that was a more of a strategic decision to kind of future-proof the company from a barrier standpoint. So those are, you know, uh, a, a few optics uh, there. Um, in regards to, you know, how we make money, that's the, you know, the most important thing for investors thinking about investing on here. We have a pretty simple approach to our revenue model. We collect a, a 10% sourcing fee to uh, each property that we acquire. So that covers things like, you know, putting the legal docs together, any short-term financing that we put in place, any costs that are associated with acquisitions um, and buyer aggregation. Think of it as like our service fee. And that's our service fee to, um, you know, scour the earth and fractionalize these vacation rentals. And then on an ongoing basis, we collect a 1% asset management fee. And that fee um, covers things like, getting your K-1s together to issue them to investors, uh, accounting, bookkeeping, regulatory filings, things that are associated with the individual investor and maintaining their books and their records on the platform. Um, and those are the only two ways we make money. Uh, pretty simple, pretty clean pricing structure. That 1% fee is like a, like an annual fee? Yeah, it's an asset management fee and it's it's tied to the asset's value. So on a $400,000 property, we collect a $4,000 asset management fee and that's taken out of the booking revenue for the property. So it's not like it's like a draw out of your checking account personally or anything like that. It's just, it's essentially taken out of the, the net proceeds that the property generates. What are your thoughts then on on the holdings, right? The holding period of, of the investments. How do you view these these vacation properties? Do you view them as things that, that you can the company can hold for, I don't know, 20, 30 years because they are in, in these locations and you have put the work in? Obviously, you might not view it that way. And then the other way is, are you looking to open up like a secondary market where investors can trade their, their shares? Or is that something where you're kind of holding off on? Yeah, um, I, I would say you know the the thing we tell investors currently is that we have a five to seven year to holding time horizon. So that's how long we plan to hold each property. Some properties will sell sooner. Some properties will hold longer. But I would estimate five to seven years as a maximum time horizon. Additionally, investors have a hundred eighty day window from when they buy shares to when they could sell shares to another investor. Now, currently, a trading environment doesn't exist. I have to preface it by saying that just to appease our lawyers. However, you know, there's a very strong chance we have on our roadmap the idea of an active trading environment um, for secondary transactions of share ownership. So I hopefully I, I, I listed every legal disclaimer to not get sued. But <laughs> currently there's no active trading environment. However, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say we were you know, actively thinking about it and actively building towards it. Um, but I'm not able to share a timeline uh, of when that will happen. But I would say with investors in regards to holding time horizon, I would average five to seven years because that's what we officially disclose if you held all the way through, if you didn't you know, seek to sell you know, to another investor on the platform. I read somewhere anyway that like if you're going to be putting a bunch of improvements into a home, it's really not worth doing it unless you're going to hold it for a while. Yeah. And I would say vacation rentals specifically really hit their stride after two or three years anyways. Reviews generally take a while to accumulate. Generally, people book stays at places with strong reviews. So that enables a couple things. It enables you to raise your prices because there's more demand for those units. 
it also enables um, follow-on repeat guests. So we really think north of two or three years is when these units really start to hit their stride. But uh, we totally understand, you know, each investor has an entirely different goal set in, of, of their own personal financial goals. Some want to hold very long, some, you know, have more immediate financial needs. So we're trying to build for both of those needs. Talking about that, right? Like getting reviews, the properties have to be managed, right? They have to be changed. The sheets have to be washed. All the, the, you know, the floor has to be uh, vacuumed. How are you managing those, those properties? Yeah, so currently we, we partner with local third-party property managers, um, on the local level, um, it allows us to launch properties in a pretty, you know, high velocity fashion, being able to launch markets pretty quickly and, and properties pretty quickly. We take the sourcing of our uh, partners on the property management level pretty seriously. So generally we, we try to work with the best and the brightest. Um, in some cases, it's a national brand like a Vacasa or an Evolve um, or an Avance Day. Um, but in other cases, the best option at a market could be a local property manager that's been there for 30 years. It's a family business and, you know, they know the market like the back of their hand. Pretty early on, we were we were presented with an interesting path of do we set up property management ourselves in these markets and install, you know, uh, a local business in, in each market or do we partner directly with existing? And, you know, we found partnering directly was the best option just from a scalability standpoint, but also you're not really displacing jobs when you do that. You're enriching local economies. You're not the big bad wolf that's coming in and um, you know uh, displacing jobs or displacing existing businesses. And we think it's a really interesting way to partner with a local economy and you know make friends while um, you know building a business inside of these you know vacation destinations. We can't get into specific returns, but just the basic return profile, right? It's going to be dividends paid out quarterly off of the vacation rental, and then when the time comes to sell the property. You know, or making the profit off of the appreciation. Yeah, and I can get into a little about a little bit about the vacation rental asset class in general. You know, generally, vacation rentals are probably the highest yielding asset class in real estate. There's a few reasons why. Uh, I'll get into the first. Uh, the main reason uh, why vacation rentals are, you know, probably having the, their their moment currently, or Airbnb specifically, you know, is the common you know word that people use with vacation rental having their moment. Um, is they generally. Um, produce around 150 to 160 percent more cash flow than a comparable long-term rental. So what's interesting is that they have unit economics like a hotel. So you know, really, really high cash flow. You do have a high expense rate, but not nearly as high as the you know cash flow ratio. And they also are mainly in single-family homes. So you get this really interesting dynamic that doesn't exist in commercial real estate. You know, commercial real estate's valued based on how much it produces in cash flow. A hotel is like that. Um, another example could be an office building um, or something of that nature. It's, 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 not, it's not valued like residential real estate, which is valued on what the home next door sold for. Totally different ways to value real estate. The interesting thing about a vacation rental is that it produces cash flow like a commercial property. But it's in a single family home that's valued like a single family home. So you get this incredible return profile that there's no other asset class in real estate has. Farmland doesn't have it, industrial doesn't have it, commercial doesn't have it, and long-term residential doesn't have it, which is a really interesting dynamic of long-term appreciation, short-term cash flow that's unseen in you know, the, the other side of the coin. So that's why we're most excited about that. Now, how it works at here, each investor that owns shares of a property, whether it be 100 shares or 100,000 shares, um, are entitled to the net operating income or the net proceeds that property generates after expenses are paid out. 
So that's after property management fees are paid and after um, utilities are paid and after the cleaning fees are paid and you know everything that goes into being a real estate investor of owning a piece of real estate, you're entitled to that cash flow after uh, expenses are paid. You're also entitled to any appreciation that the property potentially generates. So if the property goes up in value, uh, let's say in five years it goes up $200,000 or $100,000, whatever the case may be, you're entitled to your ownership stake worth of that appreciation. And you're also entitled to any tax benefits that take place during that time horizon. So um, it's identical to if you and I this weekend set up a partnership, you own 50% of the LLC, I own 50% of the LLC, and we bought a property down the street. Our investors are entitled to the same ownership rights as if the two of us partner on a property. The difference is instead of two of us owning that property, hundreds of us own that property. But our rights are identical as if the two of us own the property, which we find is really unique uh, with our ownership structure, which the Reg A powers. Yeah, I mean, that's the power of the, of the fractional investors, right? Yep. And fractional investment, like you said, it's it really a boom, right? There's a boom everywhere. And, and anybody like like yourself that's taking these market opportunities to you know launch their platforms are, are able to now. Certainly. You explained that really well. I mean, how about, uh, so that also, you know, unforeseen things, right? The, the, this is accounted for, right? Where you guys have a reserve too for like repairs, right? In case something goes goes wrong, that also comes off of the, I don't know, the, the management fees. Yes. Well, absolutely. We, th- we think about the repairs, uh, you know, ahead of time. So we actually set up each property with a repair reserve. So on closing day, when an offering closes, the property doesn't start off with $0 in its bank account. That would be kind of scary. You know, starting with zero dollars and zero cents, and if the expense comes up, comes up, you know, your negative money in your bank account. Um, so we start off each property with a repair reserve. It's anywhere from five to ten percent of the market cap of the offering, depending on the offering size. And then on a on a monthly basis, we then allocate um, anywhere from three percent to seven percent of booking revenue to that repair reserve. What that means is that you start off on day one generally with you know, anywhere from $5,000 to $30,000 in repair reserve uh, funds. Now, what's great about that is we generally underwrite the properties to make sure there, there aren't any roof you know, issues, there aren't any you know, uh, major appliance issues, there aren't any major plumbing issues or electrical issues. But if those things happened, generally there's enough to knock out a big expense that, that could come up. But on an ongoing basis, you know, that 3 to 7% of booking revenue that gets drawn, you know, put into this repair reserve covers things that happen you know with the wear and tear of owning a vacation rental a chair gets worn down something breaks plagues break you know uh, linens get old things of that nature it covers those things so that we don't have to you know have capital calls or we don't have to have you know tough tough discussions with our investors um, if that repair reserve didn't exist now it's interesting it's not like we put that repair reserve in our pocket so let's say if you if you you know you held a property until closing or until you know uh the exit time horizon say it's five to seven years and there's $30,000 in the repair reserve uh, because this property was well-maintained and nothing bad happened, that just gets dispersed evenly with the investors. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, you, you still have the same rights to that, that capital. It's not like it's uh, thrown away, so to speak. Yeah, that's such an interesting, um, explained it really well. And I'm, I'm just thinking about like what you just mentioned before a couple of minutes ago, like it's basically your, your, uh, your investors are basically owning a part of an Airbnb, right? I mean, and everything that goes into it and, 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 and including the appreciation. Yeah, without any of the responsibility. Yeah, without any of the responsibility, the headaches. They're not getting a phone call at midnight because somebody got locked out. Um, you know, they're they're not they're they're not dealing with cleanings, um, you know, or interior design or things of that nature. You know, and oh by the way, we're not pulling their credit score. They're not being put on a loan. So we really think it's it's one of the best ways to become a real estate investor um, um, is through fractional ownership of, of vacation rentals. That's awesome. Uh, you know, Corey, 
basically, you know, explain what, what here is and what you're building. You know, you're talking about the future properties that you're going to, you're close to um, releasing on the platform. Just kind of like a one big question. Last question here is like the big vision, right? I mean, and you've talked about it before. You're ultra focused on vacation rental properties. What do you see here growing into and what are some other opportunities maybe that that you're eyeing three, four, five years down the road? Yeah, I would say our, you know, our, our big vision, the stuff that we think about at night, you know, when we go to bed is how cool could it be if um, I could own shares of a, a chateau in, you know, in, 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 in France, in the French Alps, or a year in Iceland, or a bungalow in Brazil. But something is not currently possible today as an American from a fractional ownership standpoint. So that's one of the first things we think about, which is think about paradise. What if you could own a piece of paradise? And that goes as far as the earth stretches. So that's something we think a lot about is how can we find basically the best properties and the most enchanting destinations on planet earth? How can we find them and then unlock them to the average person from an investment standpoint, from an access standpoint, and then eventually, hopefully allow them to be traded freely amongst those people. So I guess that's the big vision. That's the thing that we're really thinking about and what we think, you know, is an important part of our mission. And uh, it's no better time to build in this space than today. You know, we think we're poised to accomplish that goal. So you're talking about going international and then also pulling in international investors. A little bit of both. Well, Corey, thank you so much for for taking the time to explain here. It's an exciting new platform. Like I said before, I know that our, our Discord has was, was a buzz when you guys opened up for buying the, uh, the, the shares. And so I think you got a, a good start there, man. And so appreciate it. And thank you for the love that you gave at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Anytime, Ratio. I appreciate it. You know, big fan of, of all. It's a big fan of the, the, the mission and, you know, the community you're building. And would love to stay in touch and, you know, provide, any, you know, any, any data that we can about the vacation rental asset class and fight to get that category on, on all tier. Absolutely. Take care, Corey. I uh, hope to catch up at some point soon. You know, maybe uh, we always like to get uh, guests back and, and get updates. Thanks again, Ratio. No one can deny Corey's persistence in starting here after his prior company, Homeworthy, was hurt by the pandemic. Now, Corey has built an even stronger company built upon his prior experience and the demographic change he sees in the vacation rental markets. We look forward to seeing many more beautiful properties offered on the Here platform and to see Corey's vision of one day taking its business model to the international marketplace. If you enjoyed today's podcast, let others know about it. We find our guests so interesting and Oswald and I know others will too. Or leave a review or hit the follow button. Until the next episode, take care.